Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Umbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is news editor Paul Warbank. Hi, Viv. And deputy editor Josie Tutty. Hello. And later on, we'll be chatting to the team from Mercibel about the customer experience takeover. It's not easy, it's still quite a complex environment, but the demand for the type of work that we do is growing exponentially. Ever-changing customer expectations. And have customer expectations changed? Yes, definitely. What have they been shaped by? They've been shaped by things like Uber, Airbnb. And sticking to their guns. The immediate future for us is to continue to grow in the CX space. But first, the week's topics. Droga 5, bought by Accenture Interactive. Gogglebox Angie Kent picked as the next Bachelorette. Ad spend dropped to a 10-year low in February. And Adlan's pregnancy problem. So first up, Droga 5 has been bought by Accenture Interactive, which is the same consultancy that bought the monkeys, despite David Droga saying on the record that he would never sell. So, Paul, that's quite a 180 turnaround. What happened? Well, it's uh, we we need David Droger in the room to uh, tell us exactly. I'm guessing, but uh, yeah, two years ago he was quite adamant that being independent was uh, the best thing in the world, and uh, now he's part of a global consultancy group, uh, which is interesting in the way that um, Accenture Interactive have been acquiring people. Uh, so Kamarama in the UK, the Monkeys here in Australia, and various design agencies around the world. But this is another big step from uh, the consultancy groups moving into the agency turf. And has it been disclosed how much they paid for Droga 5? They haven't, and they were quite adamant in saying that they weren't going to uh, disclose that. Uh, but no doubt we'll uh, hear more about that in coming days. But um, the monkeys were bought for $63 million. So um, it's difficult to say because we don't know exactly how much uh, Droga was turning over. So it'd be hard to say exactly what they were worth. But uh, I'm sure there are people out there working on that right now. And has he said anything about what got this deal across the line in terms of making it okay in his head because he had previously said, and I'm quoting here, I'm not interested in selling every man, cat and his dog has tried to buy us. I wasn't trying to build something to sell. So obviously every man, cat and his dog except Accenture had given it a shot. Uh, why, Why now and why this deal? I guess it's also probably just worth bearing in mind that that was in 2017. So I guess now we're in 2019, a lot of things can change. And as you say, it probably was just the right deal at the right time. Well, uh, again, I mean, really, if you're running a business like that and somebody comes along with a very good offer, you'd take it. We don't really know the state of the business. and there's, So there's that angle too, although one would assume that Accenture has done some uh, due diligence on that. But in his quotes, um, he said that uh, he was confident that Accenture are the best partner to grow their business. So uh, that may indicate that um, he was looking at the next stage of the business or maybe he's looking at an earnout and uh, going on to something else in the next few years. It's uh, Again, it's really hard to say without having him sitting in the room and uh, putting uh, matchsticks under his fingernails. <laughs> and, um, but this, um, but yeah, it's a, it is a very interesting turnaround over the last two years. Well, there's a challenge for you, Paul, to get David Droger onto the Mumbrella cast. And uh, if you're listening, we promise no matchsticks under the fingernails. <laughs> next, 10 picks its next Bachelorette.
So Channel 10 has revealed who will be its next Bachelorette with Angie Kent, probably best known for being a star, for want of a better word, in 10's Gogglebox and then going on to I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Now, 10 does have a bit of a challenge with its Bachelorette post Sophie Monk, who just rated so, so well. And then last year, Ali Ochen didn't rate particularly well, especially when compared to the behemoth that was Sophie Monk. Josie, we've gone with someone well-known, but not super famous here. Mm -hmm. What do you think the strategy is in not going back to completely unknown, but not going down like the Nick Cummins honey badger path? I think it's quite uh interesting choice simply because she is quite well known for being a bit of a personality she's a little bit quirky and I think that's kind of the angle that they were going with with Sophie Monk the problem with Ali Ochen as far as I can see is that she wasn't that well known and she didn't have too much of a quirky personality so it was almost she was a little bit sort of personality less if that's a bit too harsh um so yeah I think uh Angie as, as she's shown on Gogglebox and I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, she does have that personality. Whether she'll pull in the audience that Sophie did, um, Sophie was obviously quite a bit more well-known by a wider range of people. I think with Angie, she's probably well-known for those kinds of people that watch 10 reality programs. I'm not too sure if she's that well-known with the wider public. I personally didn't know who she was, but then I also don't know who a lot of these people are most of the time. The other thing that's quite interesting is, you know, she's been on ten, lots of 10 shows. So my thought, maybe I was being a bit cynical with this, was was it just something to do with the contract? And, you know, she'd already signed up for, to be on 10 and they were like, oh, can we put this her? is handy, we can just use her. <laughs> but that might just be me being a bit cynical. I think too, um, going to Josie's point about this being an appointment from within the 10 camp, is how well Angie's going to extend outside of that. So one would expect that in the early episodes, there's going to have to be a lot of things creating headlines and getting into the general media to get audiences that are outside of that 10 reality bubble, if you like, and uh, getting drawing in people who'd normally be watching maths or My Kitchen Rules or whatever, getting them to um, put that remote across to 10 because this really is the network's big challenge. Well, I think one thing that The Bachelorette and Bachelor franchises do do well is regardless of ratings, they take up media columns and inches. So I don't I don't think they'll struggle there. Punky and BuzzFeed and The Daily Mail have basically built off the success of these <laughs> programs at those times. So even if she rates terribly, every little action, every Twitter reaction and even the bad ratings itself will be headline generating What's your prediction, Josie? We've got a totally unknown science guy fronting <laughs> The Bachelor where they've tried to go as far away from Nick Cummins as possible and then a sort of relatively well-known 10 personality in Angie for The Bachelorette. Traditionally, The Bachelor rates better. Do you think that will still happen this year? I'm going to put my money on the table and say that Angie will rate better than the science Ooh, guy. Controversial. So we will see if I'm correct <laughs> in a few months' time. <laughs> All right, next up, February ad spend drops to a 10-year low. And the SMI is reporting that ad spend dropped to a 10-year low in February. While February 2018 experienced a record high, 
February 2019 saw a decline of 8.3% to $482.9 million. Paul, what is driving a record high versus a record low? Well, the record high we should keep in mind is the Winter Olympics last year and also the launch of the Banking Royal Commission, which saw the financial services sectors really pulling out uh, advertising campaigns ahead of that. So that really drove February 2018's results. So if we look year on year, it's probably a bit unfair on that. I think, though, the broader trend here is something that we've discussed on the Mumbrella cast in recent months is is the ad industry going into a recession? And these these figures would indicate that uh, that is consistent with it, that uh, various sectors are drying up on their spending there. And it really is looking like uh, overall ad spend is falling, maybe not as dramatic as 8.4% a year, but certainly it's in, uh, it's in a slow recession. Yeah, because normally when we get these tables – there's from SMI, there's a number of negatives uh, in terms of percentage change, but there's often a few categories that have growth. I think what's interesting glancing at this table, comparing agency bookings from 2019 to 2018 in the month of February, is every single one of them has a negative Mm. sign in front of it. So this table obviously doesn't include direct bookings. It is bookings via agencies. And It's also worth noting that it excludes government category bookings, but television is down 11.4%, digital's down 7.4%, outdoor, normally sort of the shining Mm. star of the industry is down 2.1%, radio's down 2.4%, newspapers pretty consistently down, but 12.6%, magazines 11.1%, cinema 16.7%. So the grand total is a a negative 8.3%. And the SMI said that this sort of negative demand has actually only occurred five times in the SMI's entire 12 years of recording this stuff. So, yeah, as you say, it is pretty depressing. And especially when you read out all those numbers, it (laughs) starts to think, oh, God, what's happening? Yeah, normally you can find one positive where you're like, hey, but radio is going really well. Or, hey, how good's outdoor continuing to shine? But this is it's a pretty sad little table. And the real worry with this, too, is that we don't know what's happening with those direct bookings and particularly particularly with what's happening with the social media platforms. So how much money is going into Google or Facebook um, as a proportion as well? And it could well be that we're seeing more money going there than we are through the traditional agencies as well. Well, a lot of uh, small businesses advertise on those platforms that you talk about, Paul, Google and Facebook, and they're not using media agencies. Facebook and Google have very much set themselves up as a DIY platform and are trying to target people in that way. And That's why other media companies like Nine have tried to set up these platforms for small businesses to come in and and do their ads that way because if you're a small business, you would just think, oh, I'm not going to bother with a big media agency. I'm not going to bother with the big media companies. I'll just go straight to Facebook and do it myself. So they're very much gobbling up that small amount of dollars that might still be there, certainly not going through agencies and more than likely, as you say, going straight to Facebook. And for publishers, this is a worry too because for a lot of those, particularly regional and suburban papers, uh, those local businesses advertising are now on those online platforms. And, of course, Amazon's coming into the marketplace with their own self-service platform too. Finally, we had a piece this week about a woman who was rejected from a job in Adland because she fell unexpectedly pregnant. Josie, we knew as soon as this opinion piece came into our inboxes that it would strike a chord with a lot of people and 
be a bit controversial, but something that Adland and probably just the wider workforce needs to discuss. The woman who wrote about her personal experience wanted to do so anonymously. Why do you think she didn't want to put her name to this story? Yeah, so we had quite a lot of commenters asking the same question. You know, they were saying, first of all, why didn't you come forward? And second of all, why didn't you name the agency that you were talking about? Um, But the answer to that is, it can cause a lot of issues with your career if you if you become known as that person that you know wrote that opinion piece on Umbrella, which is obviously a massive problem because if you can't actually talk about these things and discuss them and name and shame the perpetrators, then that's how they're essentially able to carry on doing what they're doing. So it is important for us to be sharing this news. It would be great if we could name and shame the agency, but just in the current climate and the amount of stigma that is currently and still surrounding it, we simply can't do that. And the person who wrote the piece, you know, was very aware of that and said, I'm happy to share, but I can only share anonymously. Yeah. And look, naming the agency also opens up a whole other can of worms in terms of the legal side of things and whether or not that agency is going to come after us We would have to do a lot of background (laughs) checks. It's uh, such an interesting point because the the woman who wrote it said that the business's excuse for not hiring her once she became pregnant was, look, we've got to look out for ourselves. We've got to look out for the business. What is the solution to that though? Because if that's going to be business's attitudes and they're going to look at it like that, they're not going to think, oh, well, look, I should do what's right by this woman they're always going to think, oh, I need to protect the business. So I can't really, I can't see how we can turn that conversation around. I think it needs to be examples of it working, being spoken about. So examples of companies coming forward and saying, look, we are, um, you know, hiring people who are pregnant or close to being pregnant or all that stuff. And here's how we do it. And here's the framework of how you can actually make that work in the workplace. And at the moment, I don't, see too much of that around it almost feels like people are just sort of getting on with it trying to make it work but not really sharing it too much so I think that could be a good solution then the other side of things is obviously the legal side of things because it this is a form of discrimination and it's not actually legal to reject someone based upon the fact that they're pregnant but yeah it's still happening quite clearly so yeah some kind of reminder or harsher penalties for these agencies that do these things could be but obviously it's very difficult to prove because you could say oh well this person was good for the job too they just happened to be a guy that wasn't pregnant but you know that's not the reason so it is very hard to regulate so it's unfortunate that we don't really know who the agency is because we don't know whether it's a small agency or a big agency for a small organization it's much harder to cover somebody going on maternity leave than there's big now don't get me wrong i'm not defending this at all but um, you can understand a proprietor or a manager of a smaller agency thinking, hey, I don't have uh, the resources to cover to cover a staff member going on leave so soon. This really comes back, though, as you were just saying, Josie, to uh, we've really got to have a much broader industry-wide or economy-wide look at this on how do we support families, how do we support individuals, how do we support the businesses with this? Uh, do we go for a Scandinavian national insurance scheme or uh, uh, do we end up with the sort of hybrid American-British thing that we've currently got at the moment where uh, the businesses and the individual families carry the load on that, on things like childcare and maternity leave and so on? It's a, it's a much bigger issue there. But uh, yeah, it's uh, this is fraught with all sorts of problems for everybody. Yeah, it really is. I think back in, I can't remember what year it was, uh, 2015 or possibly 2016, 
uh, I was at a job interview with a, a publisher who I, I won't name for all of the reasons <laughs> that we've already listed off. And one of their first questions to me was, when are you going to have children? Uh, and I just said, oh, you, you can't ask me that. Uh, it's not it's not legal, uh, but also I'm not going to answer it. Uh, and they quite naively just really pushed on and were like, yeah, but anyway, we, we need to know because, you know, you're, you're at that age. So, again, it was making assumptions about my age, yeah. about my plans, about the fact that I could have children. You know, there's a whole other can of worms there. And I just kept pushing back saying, you know, I'm just not going to answer that, so let's move on. So then they asked me if I had a partner as a oh way to God. try and get into whether I was going to have children. And then I sort of almost had to give them like a sex ed lesson where I explained <laughs> that I could be as single as they come and get pregnant on a one-night stand and decide to keep it or I could be infertile with a husband. Like it's not <laughs> it's not related. So needless to say, I didn't take the job and they could not for the life of them understand why. But for me... Not that I had any plans to get pregnant and not that I ended up accidentally pregnant, but I just didn't want to work for an organisation that even when they made a mistake and would called on the legalities of it, they were just so keen to put their business first and thought that their potential editor getting pregnant was actually the worst thing that could happen and it was mm. worth breaking the law to find out. And it just seems so ridiculous when you think of Jacinda Ardern, who is the Prime Minister of New Zealand and yet she's just had a baby and you know she carried on working so why can't an editor of a publication do the same <laughs> yeah and look she's getting lots of positive press so it certainly hasn't hasn't held her back in any way that we've been able to see so I guess that's one good example mm-hmm. of what you were talking about Josie yes. where people can see that it's working and perhaps the tide will start to turn but I guess the other thing we'll have to keep an eye on is uh the comment thread on this article because I imagine it's going to spark some quite heated debate on the issues within Adland. And joining us now on the Mumbrella cast, we have the two co-founders of Mercibel, Nick Mercer, who these days is the agency's chairman, and David Bell, the agency's executive creative director. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Pleasure, Josie. Now, I want to start by going back, casting your mind back 20 years, when you were dreaming up a new agency at the Hero of Waterloo pub in the Rocks in Sydney. Could you just set the scene for me and tell me where your mind was at all those years ago? Yeah, well, actually, probably let's go back um, another six months, because the actual idea of Mercibel was actually crystallized six months prior. And we spent six months, and we had a code name for our new business called bread roll and so therefore it's always like dave we're going to do a bread roll meeting you know <laughs> so six months prior we had decided to set out our plan for building mercer bell the hero of the waterloo was really the time when dave and i went okay now is definitely the time to actually make it happen um and i so was that actually was- going to walk and nick had to convince me we've become disillusioned with the way um our agency was going and i was very disillusioned with that direction and and nick took me to the pub and uh we had a beautiful guinness pie each and a few guinnesses and he shared his his vision with me i think sometimes you need a catalyst and this was the catalyst and 
um, the catalyst was that Dave was going to leave. Um, and that was then, that then really gave us the opportunity to say, well, why don't we do something together on our own? You know, we're both reasonably senior people. Dave was creative director. I was GM. Um, and, and so therefore it was, it allowed us the opportunity to then say, yeah, let's push the button. Let's go and do this. Now, Dave, you mentioned disillusionment. What were some of the things that you were struggling with at that time? And and how did you think you could do them better? It was mainly due to the the craft of what was then known as pure direct marketing. Um, We ran MNC Saatchi Direct as a separate entity, and we had run it that way for a number of years very successfully. Um, The way the model was changing of the agency was to integrate the direct skills with what was called back then the the above-the-line skills, and Nick and I fundamentally didn't agree with that because they're a very, very different set of skills. Um, so they had actually integrated the agency. So we were all part of one and um, we felt we were losing some of our, our identity and also the way that our skills were appreciated. So I was going to look elsewhere. I think what's interesting, if you think about today's climate, we're actually seeing CX agencies almost taking over some of the lead agencies. You know, if you look at Thompson. J. Walter Thompson is now really being run by Wonderman. So what's what Dave was actually sort of seeing back 20 years ago is actually now happening, where a lot of the uh, the bigger agency groups are now being led by, led by more CX-type skill sets. And what gave you the confidence at that time? Obviously, 20 years ago, CX wasn't the thing it is today. What gave you the confidence to really know that that was the right direction to go in? Look, being perfectly honest, it's just backing yourself. You know, we had some great clients. um, We were doing some great work. We were winning awards. And we're at a stage where you're in your life and you sort of think, I can take a bit of a punt. I can take a bit of a risk. And so therefore, our mindset was, look, if it all does screw up, we we can go and get a job tomorrow. Um, And so that gives you that catalyst, gave us the confidence to say, let's go and do this. I want to ask you about the name Mercibel. (laughs) There are a lot of agency names that I have questioned on this podcast many times. I'm not going to name any right now. I'm sure you've got many popping into your mind right now that you've thought, "Mm, not really sure about that name. So I like the fact that you just went, this is our surnames. That's what the name's going to be. Can you talk to me about your your thought (laughs) process there? There wasn't really much much thought process. I wish I could say we, we ran a strategic plan and we did research. Being perfectly honest, the iteration, Mercibel, just sounded better than Bell Mercer. And Bell Mercer, there was a telephone company called Bell Southwest or something. So mm. so Mercer Bell sounded, you know, it sounded had a nice It rolled off the tongue. And yeah. and originally we were going to stick the word direct after it because we'd come from our heritage of of Jay Water Thompson direct for Nick and Ogilvy direct for myself and MNC Saatchi direct. So we were actually um, standing on the steps of yet another pub, um, Customs House Hotel, with our staff once we told them that we were resigning and moving on. And one of our copywriters, we were discussing with him, and he convinced us, well, we should drop the word direct because it's too hard for any receptionist to remember all of that. And it sounded odd, Bell Mercer Direct. So Mercer Bell just became Mm -hmm. rolled off the tongue. I think it was a good decision. Mm. Now you guys were acquired Moving forward slightly. 20 years. (laughs) In the time machine. In 2016, 2016, you guys were acquired by publicists. Was that always the end goal when you started? Had you ever imagined that that might happen all those years ago? Not really. No, look, I mean, to be honest, you know, when you set up a business and and if you go back, this is pre the days of 
startup. You know, it's pre the days of angel funding, seeding capital. We were just two guys who felt that we could create a business, create great products and work with great clients. So um, we didn't really have this end game mapped out. And I think probably, was it naive? No, I think it's just making, maybe just we're focusing on what the next, because it's, what are we going to do for the next six months? How, you know, how are we going to make it to the next year? So, you know, you're really focused on the day-to-day stuff. It wasn't really a thing back then. As Nick said, we were, we had the belief that we could do fantastic work, whether it was with an agency or with the agency that we would set up ourselves and mirror the skills that we'd, we'd learnt together through MNC Saatchi Direct and then individually through Thompson's and Ogilvy. And I guess after our 10th birthday, um, a few years after that, we met a few people that talked to us about selling their agencies and earnouts and things. And that's when we, we really seriously started to, to talk about it. But it was, yeah, it wasn't until after our, even our 10th birthday that we started to consider it. Now, speaking of acquisitions, over the past few years, and definitely during the time that I've been at Mumbrella for the past two years or so, there have been a lot of smaller indie agencies and sort of big agencies too that have been acquired by consultancies. Thinking of Monkeys and Accenture, PwC and Thinkabell and even Deloitte ransacking some McCann staff members recently. I just, I'm curious what you guys think about that trend and would you ever have considered it yourself if it was ever on the cards? Look, I think, you know, um, we would definitely have had a conversation with somebody um, because it's it's always beneficial to find out what are they, why are they acquiring a business? What, what's their intention? What's their plan? What's their map? So yes, we would have had a, a conversation. We probably had a couple of chats, brief chats with some of the, the consultancies in the early days. But um, really, when you're looking at evaluating the businesses, it's got to be around making sure you're aligning yourself and your staff and your clients with a business that's got shared values, uh, has got a very clear roadmap, has got a very clear vision. So um, we were lucky enough to find that in publicists. We had some great advice. We did employ a mergers and acquisitions expert and they helped us. And early on they said, because we could talk to anyone we wanted, so the big groups, we were talking to all of them, and he suggested that um, there was two in particular and he said, write down your top ten um, things that you want out of this merger if you went with this particular group and then score them and then you add up all your scores and see where you end up. And it was interesting that Nick and I were very similar in our final scores, um, different on our list of things we required, but um, we were very similar. It scored very high, and that's really where we ended up from that that little exercise. I forgot we did that, actually. Yeah, it just quite, jogged my memory. It's quite good. <laughs> I do that all the time. We've been there for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah so that's something I wanted to ask you. You've, you've been a team together now for 20 years and julie dormand who's now your ceo Mm -hmm. who's been with the business for about 15 years i believe 18 oh wow okay that's a long time now it's pretty rare in adland what are your secrets to keeping a management team together for so long and and why do you think others struggle with it a lot i think a lot of it comes down to what we call the mercibellian culture or being a mercibellian um, and I think that if you ask Jules those questions, it would be the fact that, again, we've got shared values um, and we've given her the autonomy and the and the ability to grow at every level. It just so happens that Jules joined us as a, as an account manager, account director, account manager, account manager. I think it was in and early... so at, at each level, we've been able to help her grow gain more experience, gain more confidence um, and to where she is now as CEO. So I think being able to give people responsibility, we, you know, 
one of the things, one of the beauties of setting up your own business is you can set those parameters of how you operate, um, how you act in the office, um, what your values are. So we were lucky enough to um, create that environment. And I think that Jules and Paul and Jean, who've all worked for us a long time, they've all got those similar values. And I think they respect the fact that we give them the space to grow. And did you ever worry during the time of the acquisition with Publicis? You know, obviously, as you say, you check them out, you know, you, you scored them, they ranked the highest, but the, there's doing all that. And then there's actually the thing happening and, you know, moving into the offices and the, the cultures there could be potentially different. Did you ever have any concerns during that time? Yeah, I think, look, you've always got to have some sort of trepidation um, because you can make the best plans in the world, but, you know, things can go to pot. Um, so I think it was more a hesitation, mm-hmm. really more around what we think is going to happen. Will it happen? Uh, and generally speaking, you know, what we thought was going to happen has exactly happened. Um, and and so therefore, the, it ended up there weren't too, there weren't really any surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we, we sought professional help, just like we did with the mergers and acquisitions person. So we had a a change management specialist and, and Julie Jules ran that. Um, so we had every eventuation hopefully covered for right down to how and when and who we told and in what order. Um, we took the whole management team for a very early morning breakfast around the corner from work on York Street and Nick uh, explained for us to survive and grow in the future. This is good for the business and it's good for you individually. And then we gathered all the staff around and we invited Mike Rebello up and Mike gave a speech as well and he met all of the staff and it made everyone feel a lot more comfortable. So everything was covered off with a plan, including when we did eventually move down from York Street down to George Street, um, everyone's desk was ready to go, their computer was there, they had a welcome gift. So um, we tried to eliminate all the issues that could possibly arise. Now, talking of moving, obviously in 2017, you guys opened a Melbourne office and Nick, you did move down to Melbourne during that time. I wonder where you've been. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to tell me about that process and what it was like opening that office, which was for pretty much for Toyota was your client and that was the main reason you were opening that office. How was that process? Yeah, look, um, it's been a brilliant process um, and probably, probably one of the key factors to our success because Toyota was one of our larger clients and we've had a relationship with them for uh, nearly 15 years. And so when, when Toyota decided to move to Melbourne, there was no doubt in my mind that one of us would have to go to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to continue the relationship um, and, and grow an office. One of the reasons why our, our acquisition by, uh, by publicists or Saatchi was very good was because Saatchi and Mercibel shared Toyota. Mm-hmm. So therefore it was, it was really made it much easier that Mercer Bell would set up people uh, in the Saatchi office and create a team called T2, which was a combined team across planning, across account service. So the process has been brilliant. And, um, you know, we're about a year, four months into it, and I'm a Melbourne convert. <laughs> I love Melbourne. I'm, you know, sitting in a room with people with, all from Sydney or other parts well. of the world. But no, so I think, look, the, but the actual, it was so fun going and setting up another office. It was mm-hmm. a bit like the early days of Mercer Bell in Sydney, because, you know, you've got a new environment. We were in a new city with new people, new clients, some new clients. So it was a great process mm-hmm. um, and, and it's worked. It seems like there are quite a lot of agencies who have been opening up in Melbourne over the past few years. How is the culture there and how is it sort of different creatively from Sydney? Do you see much of a difference there? 
It is a bit different. Um, it's a bit different to live in as a city. Um, and in terms of the industry, um, it's a smaller industry. Um, I think there's probably a higher regard for creativity in Melbourne. Um, and it's being a smaller community, more people know each other. So there's almost a, a slightly friendlier environment. <laughs> I can imagine. Mm. Um, now, Nick, you have just started a new role. You were telling me earlier. Uh, you've started working on data spine do you want to just tell me how that's been going and and how how you kind of came to the decision to to start that new role sure so data spine is a business which has been launched in uh, in the uk and the us now for about nine months um and essentially it's a it's a it's a business that uh, we've created a technology platform and we ingest first second and third party data we create growth audiences and create the ability to target um, much tighter precision marketing on different audiences. That's the, the premise for People Cloud, which is the name of the product. Um, about a year or so ago, when we knew that Pe- People Cloud was being planned uh, in the US, um, I was asked to look at the data resources we had in Australia. And so we mapped out and did an audit of all of the data people, the data skills, so that we can go back and say, if it launches in Australia, this is what we've got here. So, so I was right a part of it early on. So when we knew the business was going to be launched in Australia, um, I knew that um, the earnout was coming to a close, and so uh, we started having. I started having conversation with the guys, you know, saying, "Is is this going to be coming to Australia? And if so, I'd be interested." So the timing was really beneficial, and I started the new mm-hmm. role on Jan One. Well, congrats, and David. Obviously, you're at still ECD at Mercibel. Where do you see the agency going? Obviously, there's been a little bit of a change with Nick stepping slightly away into his role as chairman, Julie coming on board as CEO. Where do you see the agency headed in the next five years? Or is that a very broad question to ask you? Five, five <laughs> years is a little hard to, yeah. to look into the future. Um, the immediate future for us is to continue to grow in the CX space. We're seeing more and more of our clients requesting data-driven marketing, um, which is which is essentially what we do. So we're uh, bolstering our strategy department, our data department. We're changing the skill set slightly in the in the creative department as well to make sure that we're ahead of the curve so we can deliver the types of communications that clients are asking for more and more. And why do you think it's more important than ever before that marketers are viewing their work through a CX lens? I think because the budgets are so much tighter and also the media landscape has changed with the advent of all the platforms um, and when we first started, pretty much if clients wanted to talk to their customers, they either did it through outbound telemarketing or direct mail. But now, and that was can, can be fairly expensive if you're doing it on, on large uh, client bases. So now anyone can send out emails. So the email marketing um, has really changed what we do. It doesn't make it necessarily better the rules still apply about making sure you're sending relevant information at the right time. But it really is changing the way that the clients are using their marketing budgets now. I, I think, um, I, look, I mean, I'm still chairman, so I can still have an opinion, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, 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 the picture is very rosy for Mercer Bell. I think that what we are seeing increasingly is companies realising they need to connect better with their customers. They need to create real seamless experiences and so therefore 
the idea of actually um, creating more sales from your existing customers, which is a no-brainer, is just so much more dominance. And the technology and the data is is there to actually allow this to happen. It's not easy. It's still quite a complex environment. But the demand for the type of work that we do is growing exponentially. So how have customers' expectations changed since way back then in 1999? Well, if I look at the situation when we first started in 1999, um, we shared a Nokia 910 phone, which was not a smartphone. It just answered phone calls and sent texts. Um, emails are pretty rare. The internet was pretty fledgling. People were saying, yeah, I get it. I'm not sure how to use it. Um, and there was no social media. The word Facebook didn't exist. So back in 1999, it was quite different. And have customer expectations changed? Yes, definitely. What have they been shaped by? They've been shaped by things like Uber, Airbnb. And we were having this discussion about, um, you know, the, the, like the portability, you know, and I still think it's amazing. I can get on a plane in Sydney, fly to LA, get out of LA, open my phone, book an Uber. How simple is that? <laughs> yeah, for that's sure. really, you know, I know the process to actually do that's probably quite mm-hmm. complex, but as a user, it's genius. Definitely. I think sadly, that's all we've got time for, but thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. And just before we go, if you're thinking about coming along to Mumbrella 360 this June and assuming that you're listening to this podcast relatively soon after its release, you've only got a few days left to take advantage of early bird savings. If you book by Monday the 8th of April, you will save $600 off the cost of a ticket. So if you listen to the Mumbrella cast after its release date, these are the sorts of things you're going to be missing out on. We've been rolling out new speakers and sessions weekly for this event and the program is showcasing some of Australia's biggest CMOs, international talent and a host of local industry leaders. So hop on over to mumbrella360.com.au to book your tickets. That's all for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you.